welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you'll hear part one of my conversation with Peter McClellan from Oxford College of Emory University. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. Uh, today we have Peter McClellan from uh, Oxford, Un- uh, Oxford College at Emory University joining us. And Peter is the educational analyst at uh, uh, Oxford. And uh, he has uh, previously was at Drew University, when we will talk a little bit about that. Uh, and uh, today I've invited him because he has been instrumental in some of the successes at uh, both universities that I, we've, I've worked with him. Uh, and uh, he is, has some you know, fantastic ideas, extremely creative, open-minded, out of the box, and at times I would even say whimsical in the way that he approaches uh, um, uh, working with uh, students, faculty, and uh, you know, at, at, his, uh, at his various roles at different colleges. So, Peter, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Good to see uh, you. Did you like that whimsical part? Because I really I feel did. that way. <laughs> yeah, you, you come up with some pretty wild uh, ideas. Um, and I'm sure that they're, they're deeply appreciated. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit um, about Oxford College of Emory University? Because uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the colleges at Emory, uh, but it's also kind of uh, sort of a special college. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a unique place. It's really... Um... Yeah, it is a special place. Uh, Oxford is a two-year college, um, and uh, a vast majority of our students, like, I don't know, we'll just say 99%, um, go on to um, finish their their four-year degree at at Emory College in Atlanta. Um, So they get their associate's degree um, and then then just kind of move on. Um, Oxford is unique in that it provides a little bit more of a liberal arts kind of Focus before they go on to to their time um, at Emory College, um, which is often um, a little bit more tracked um, in their approach to 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 education. And so, um, there's something that students at Oxford get that other places um, or that that other places at, at Emory might not offer. Um, we also are a majority non-white um, institution as well. Um, historically, um, Oxford has has kind of provided. Um, a space for students who are under-resourced um, uh, going going into college um, before they went on to, to Emory um, Emory College, but um, that's changed that's changed a little bit um, over the years. But still, our our uh, median income of our student body is lower than than um, than our, our counterparts in Atlanta. So it's a really great place. Our faculty. Um, it, you know they teach a three three, so it's um, it's mainly a teaching focused institution. Um, but it's residential and, and real strong sense of community. It's it's really fan- fantastic. I in fact I think that there are for many of the universities out there that are, you know, trying to bridge the gap between you know providing equity and accessibility to um, to students uh, from 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 all different backgrounds. Um, uh, something like Oxford College could be the model for them, really. Uh, and many, many, mo, mo, many universities, actually most universities don't have that, especially universities like Emory. You mm-hmm. either 
have to have the ability to get in as a as a first year students in the, through admissions, and that's kind of the, your only path. And if you you miss that boat because your high school experience did not afford you the SAT preps, did not afford you the the correct counseling, and and you kind of miss the boat, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really exciting place to to work and and students you know we have a lot of our faculty have opportunities for um, research with students and so our students get um, this real sort of like hands on relational sort of experiences with our with our faculty members um, and in fact one of our, our faculty Sarah Fankhauser has um, is the is the director of the um, uh, uh, what is it? I think it's the Journal for Emerging Investigators, um, where even even young people before college have a chance to work with with researchers as well. Um, so it's a that's really it's awesome. really a, really a cool place to be. Yeah, well, I really applaud Emory University for 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 structuring it like this because this is uh, this has been a while. I mean, this is not new. Um, yeah. So this is it's really fantastic. So um, now you were previously at Drew University. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and was that where you started your e-portfolio sort of journey? Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, I know we've talked about this before, but, um, so I, uh, I got my PhD in biblical studies, um, at Drew and, um, uh, while I was there, um, I kind of discovered that, that I was, I was interested in sort of like. Um, bigger questions, bigger, bigger, bigger picture questions, and um, uh, hold on. Biblical studies wasn't big enough. You have to yeah, no, it's not big enough. No. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, um, but uh, you know, it's like uh, so. I, you know, my my work was pretty interdisciplinary, and also, I mean, you use the word whimsy. Uh, yeah, we'll go with that. But you know, I got into questions of like uh, spirits and ghosts and haunting. And there's, there's some great theoretical work out there about, about ghosts, um, that I have, um, <laughs> um that I, that I really gravitated towards. Um, there's a whole, um, world of thinking called hauntology, hauntology. So not ontology, but hauntology, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. for those philosophers out there. Um, but the, you know, it's a, it's, uh, the question's about like, how do people that we don't see or um, people from the past um, kind of impact us in the present and make demands on us, uh, oftentimes demands for justice um, to create a, a better future? And um, and so in the world of biblical studies, you know, that that kind of looked like for me, um, I was thinking about gentrification. And so, you know, uh, I grew up in upper middle class suburbia and in, in um in St. Paul suburbs, um, you know, when I was uh, in New Jersey, is the same sort of same situation. And now I'm here in Atlanta, and you know, we have a young child, and we moved to where the good schools were, you know. And so it's kind of the same sort of thing where you you look at the world around you when you're in these situations of like material privilege, and you just don't see difference. Um, I think um, you know, Minnesota, New Jersey, perhaps ironically, always felt like the more segregated spaces to me, even more so than, than, um, the Atlanta area where I am now, um, you know, sort of historically, you know, um, segregated space, um, gentrification kind of creates those spaces segregation. So those questions of haunting, like, like, um, 
uh, people and voices and communities kind of making demands from without, you know, those people that you don't see. Mm-hmm. Uh, haunting became a really rich vein for me. And I, you know, I thought about that in terms of scripture at Drew. So like, you know, there's like, you have sacred texts and, and um, you know, questions of justice kind of coming from without um, and then also from within on the text. And so it was kind of a fun way for me to play around. But while I was there, um, I, I mean, I always knew that I was interested in teaching, but um, kind of alongside those, those, you know, academic questions, I was, you know, I was teaching at Drew, um, at Seton Hall and, um, and found that my, the conversations I enjoyed the most weren't necessarily like those questions about like, well, how do I teach text X, Y, and Z in the classroom, but more like, how do people learn? Um, uh, what are the, what are the, the programmatic questions that we can, we can think about, um, that help students learn better, help teachers teach better. And I talked with my dissertation advisor about that partway through, and we started talking a little bit about what a career path would look like, you know, that wasn't, <laughs> um, that wasn't a professor because professors, uh, you know, our faculty are, are stretched thin, you know, uh, everywhere. And you don't have the time to think about that stuff. And she was, um, I guess, case in point, she was a dissertation advisor, a professor and our, our, our dean. So, so she's, so, uh, you know, she, they, they had been talking about e-portfolios as a thing and she, you know, kind of tapped me to, to lead the project on that. Mm-hmm. And I found that, you know, just as much, perhaps even more so than like sacred texts are a space where, where people have like their eight exercise, their agency in a space and make their voices heard. E-portfolios are literally where that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because, because students have a cell phone, uh, self-owned platform, um, where they can author their own story if it's done, if it's done well. And, uh, and so it just kind of took off from there um, and uh, had the opportunity to go to go to Oxford yeah. um, after my PhD there. It's really fun. Well, I'm not surprised that your dean tapped you for it. I love the way you think, <laughs> and I'm sure that um, she did as well. Um, <laughs> I, I knew nothing about hauntology, but <laughs> when you first explained it, I was starting to think, hold on a second, does this include... Bigfoot and yeah, right. in it. but it sounds like actually it's a very narrow definition. It's you know these are people that historically exist. Um, yeah, so yeah. there's there's um in fact it was a I remember it was a question in my dissertation defense uh, from one of one of the people on the committee and and they said um, so it was towards the end you know and this dissertation defense is like you know everybody kind of knows once you get to that point that you're going to pass mm-hmm. so they were they were running out of things to talk about and they just said so do you believe in ghosts <laughs> you know like that was the question at the defense just <laughs> like probably the hardest question to answer you know um, uh, in some ways it was relevant in some ways it wasn't but you know um it also like it's something haunting magic whatever uh it'll it, it does kind of help us i think in all sorts of academic circles to like break that, break that, um, that sort of cold scientific approach that we have yeah. to analyzing situations and, mm-hmm. um, and, and allowing us to think about the stuff that people produce as like infused with, yeah. with their beliefs and, and desires is, um, it's pretty exciting. Um, I me. think it's a, I, I really, this is one of the reasons that I, I, I feel like you have had so much success is mm-hmm. it's the, you know, you have, you know, I, I, I think you're very intelligent, and you, you, you have, um, you have just a very special way of looking at the world. But, but you also bring in, honestly, just a, 
just a very good dose of fun, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so I could imagine your faculty and your students are, you know, they just genuinely enjoy that. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> we um, we we run a thing called, or we're, we're implementing a program called the um, the the milestone, which is kind of where our, like our students obviously they can't capstone their experience because it's only part way through. So we call it a milestone, and mm-hmm. um, it's it's a it's a reflective um, learning opportunity, and, and it happens throughout the time. Anyway, they create a portfolio, and the template I had initially created was probably a little bit too fun because it was a, a the template was like a a, a fake partial e portfolio for Kermit the Frog, and um, and the I thought it would it would loosen students up, but I, I think it they didn't take it quite 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 as seriously, and. Wow. Um, um, I eventually had a faculty member explain to me that maybe maybe that wasn't the right way to go. Yeah. <laughs> Just oh, you know, you make, it, make it a little bit more serious. Yeah, that's right. We experimented, yeah. but we still find ways with a lot of folks to put memes in there um, mm-hmm. to encourage students to to also kind of express themselves as well. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that's actually something that's interesting. Um, student expressing one themselves in in portfolios and social media, online identity in general. Um, I do find that there is a certain level of seriousness and professionalism people tend to exhibit more in a portfolio, you know, in comparison to, for example, their Instagram pages and whatnot. Um, there is a, there is a line that, um, <clears throat> well, it's a big spectrum, hmm. and and I I I. I think that there is, um, I have seen there are some portfolios that are almost too um, sort of clinical and too mm-hmm. sort of like, it almost feels dry. It almost feels yeah. like, hey, hold on a second. How can I actually learn about this person's personality? You know, mm-hmm. the, as far as the portfolio is, is concerned, it's like got the perfect everything, but like, where's the, you know, where's the, where's the humanity in this? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, that's been a that's been a struggle. Um, I don't mean to say struggle negatively. I think mm-hmm. more in terms of process, something that that mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about with when we when we work with our students and, and our faculty to help create not just templates but also assignments um, that are that are meaningful. So that's kind of been for me. That's been my focus lately is is making sure that we have um, portfolio assignments that allow students. Um, or get, communicate to them and make them feel comfortable about making the most genuine product possible. Yeah. Um, and that's a difficult that's a difficult thing to do. Um, thinking about what is genuine and not. I mean, I I still don't really know. But um, you know, we we actually had um, we we worked with um, one of our anthropology faculty, um, Alicia Di Nicola, and um, we had her students, they were just doing, it was intro to anthropology class, you know, one-on-one sort of thing. And she was introducing that her or her students to different, um, um, different uh, ways of inquiry um, and, and methods for anthropology. And so for the last two linguistics and I think it was semiotics. Um, she, we actually took a batch of our students' portfolios. And, you know, students had given permission, and the students did something called coding with them, which is a form of of, um, of analysis, like qualitative Good analysis. Quality, yeah. mm-hmm. And um, and and it was it was interesting because we, we we had them take a look at some of the language that our students were using because we were concerned, like, 
how are students responding to our assignments? How are they responding to Oxford in ways that aren't always explicit? Um, you know, so like, um, you know, they might tell us something about, oh, my experience here was great, but the students were able to pick up some stuff from their fellow students, some terms that they were, ways they were describing Oxford, ways they were describing their peers and the most meaningful mm. kind of experiences on campus. And, and they weren't, the things that were meaningful weren't always the items that we were assessing for, yeah. um, you know, we assessed for programmatically um, at the institution, you know, and they, oh, yeah. you know, they valued one another, they, um some of the ways that they talked about Oxford college versus Emory college or didn't like some of the silences that, that right. only, you know, peers what can pick they say, up. What they also didn't say. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, um, and so it's one of the challenges we have now is like thinking like, okay, so how can we, we don't expect students to make all that explicit, but how can we make them feel as comfortable as possible that they can use the language that they want to use in this sort yeah. of cell phone space. And we think, you know, the assignments like, one way to do that. There's cultural ways to do that too, yeah. but I think we're starting with our assignments right now. But I love that you are talking about this more sort of qualitative um, way of, you know, coding, but also, you know, comparing to sort of a lot of the more popular sort of, you know, purely outcome-based assessment methods today in, in higher education. This is a, um, I think, a, a much-needed um way to to fill a lot of the gaps that currently exist in current assessment methods in my opinion yeah i think because students can even if they don't say it students can tell us a lot about um how we're doing (laughs) um when when you don't ask them how are we doing um Mm -hmm. you know people do this all the time you know it's how people engage with the world can tell us um, about how they about how they feel about it you know Mm -hmm. whether they're surviving or thriving things like that Right, right. Um, I I absolutely agree. Uh, I've got it. I've got to get. Um, I've got. I've got to get Melissa Pete to come on this. Um, she's a good friend of mine, and she'd always talked about something that I love, which, which she called tacit knowledge. You know, um, and I think that that's you know she'd always just. I love the way she describes it. it's things that you know, but you don't know. You know. Oh uh, yeah. And, uh, and those are sometimes, you know, you take it for granted, but they might in fact be your just personal superpowers, you know, and, and actually, um, I find that it is easiest for someone else to tell you that, Mm. Um, right. Uh, it's easiest for someone because in my mind, when I have, I've worked with you for a while and I've seen the kind of things that you do and the way you think about things, it's, it's so obvious to me for example, you know, the kind of like magical power that you bring to it. Now we're bringing in ontology as well. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's it's exactly the kind of things that for, especially for students who are a little bit less aware because they hadn't spent as much time thinking about it. Um, they don't even, they're not feeling confident about it, you know? And, um, and I, I, I love this, this approach that you have and it feels a lot like just good teaching and learning really. Um, right. Um, so I know that you have also been thinking about and actually writing about, um, some, 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 um, ideas on sort of, 
some you know really important topics today, such as having a pedagogy that is anti-racist, that uh, the pedagogy, an e-portfolio pedagogy that 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 is anti-racist. What does that look like? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because um, I think that's a really interesting topic, and I really uh, enjoy having read a little bit of your ideas. And don't sure. tell us things that you can't talk about yet because you're to you know these are some things to be published. Yeah, there's some stuff in peer review right now. Mm-hmm. Um but um yeah, I think um so there's um there's been conversation for a long time about um the academy being a a white institution. I mean it's a it's a western mm-hmm. european um invention and um we have all sorts of um uh, evidence now that that you know, across the university, students who are by and large white, um, American, European, uh, wealthier, and um, you know, second generation or later, um, are, are achieving achieving by our measures at, at higher at higher rates in um, in higher education, and um, and so um, you know, anti anti racist pedagogy recognizes that that the university is a is a white invention um, that is a um, you know a white supremacist invention because white people um, are uh, succeed and then um, and then black voices brown voices get get drowned out and so um, uh, so anti racist pedagogy is is interested in exposing those um, those things and then making a space that is explicitly against racism is against white supremacy. Um, and, you know, that involves um, agency for, for all people in the classroom, um, the ability for, for students, explicitly students of color to succeed. And, um, you know, uh, you know, we, we actually started doing some of this, this work before the pandemic, um, you know, our, our, um, our dean of faculty development, Molly McGee, and um, my my boss um, Scott Foster had um, started getting us involved in. Um, uh, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the term. Uh, oh, universal design, uh, universal design for learning, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that that kind of that spurred a lot of a lot of these these um, these thoughts for me. Um, so, universal design for learning is the idea that when we design our classrooms for those who are most marginalized to, su- to succeed everybody does better. Um, and so we, we had started kind of thinking in our, in our office about like physical classroom design. Um, mm-hmm. and then when we went virtual, well, <laughs> uh, we didn't really have physical classrooms. And right. so my brain had a chance to go to other places. Um, and so, uh, anyway, so, so portfolios were, were, um, a space to think about this. Um, uh, another one of our faculty had approached me, she was running our pilot of our milestone, and um, we had just finished assessing um, some of the students and um, noticed that our students of color were receiving lower, um, lower marks um, on, their, on their projects. It's a pass-fail course, but we have an evaluative rubric. Um, and, um, and so that, that, um, that also kind of nudged me to start thinking about some of these, some of these, um, these issues. Mm-hmm. And with the suspicion that I mean, because it was frustrating because the, the portfolio project is is there particularly for um, student, non-traditional college students. And um, and so, you know, you'd hope that um, that they would be they would be doing better. Um, and so we we started thinking about about like what we were asking students to do and, you know, asking them to make 
both authentic portfolios and academic portfolios. And, um, and we were really, uh, we had kind of narrowed our definition of what knowledge could be. And that is, is perfect example of, 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 you know, when the, when the sort of knowledge that, that um, is considered good is being produced by the white students, that's a red flag. And, and, um, and it's also like just a perfect example of what the Academy expects of students and from them. Who, who they the academy expects them to be, and it wasn't necessarily our our readers who were faculty members who also do the assessment. It was the assignment itself. It was the culture of of the campus, the culture of of which which prides itself on being a sort of open, diverse, safe space. Even even a, co- a college like Oxford that is majority non-white mm-hmm. still has these expectations um, that are infused in it from, you know, centuries of colonialism. And so um, for me, the, the portfolio is kind of a place to, to, to break, to break this a bit. Um, so the, um, the, if we, I'm thinking of starting with the students and where their knowledge is 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 produced and where they produce knowledge. It's kind of the as the starting point. I think um, offers us something uh, a little bit new. So, for example, we had a student who um, whose portfolio exhibited a lot of sort of knowledge of the world, mm-hmm. but the learning that they demonstrated in the portfolio was from before college. So, you know, they have this narrative about how mm-hmm. I learned all this stuff from my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is an African-American student and I'm going to Oxford so I c- can become a doctor. So here's all the stuff that I learned in my past. This is how it's going to help me become a doctor. And there's this gap in there, noticeable, which is two years at Oxford where they don't sort of demonstrate how valuable their time at Oxford is. Um, and, uh, and so one way we traditionally might assess that would be, oh, well, you didn't show us how your learning at Oxford impacted you know, your growth. Um, another way to look at that though, is that this is somebody who has a lot of knowledge who's in our community and is telling us something about their experience. And so, uh, we can flip our assessment, uh, measures and instead of, uh, having them, you know, come from, from top, you know, a top down approach, we can have them come from the students themselves. So how do the students through their portfolios assess our institution? I think the agency that students, uh, exhibit in, in portfolios, uh, is itself, a um, a, a resource for us um, to start doing anti-racist pedagogy because it's it's just a more democratic um, way to think about it when we have students kind of owning their own space and um, mm-hmm. and producing knowledge there. So that's that's kind of where I'm I'm thinking right now as a place to start um, yeah. with programmatic assessment. And I, I really feel like almost like literally the definition of um, taking from a diverse source. Mm-hmm. It's just by pure numbers here, you know, number of faculty versus number of students, you have much, many more students. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and the source is just going to be way richer, way, um, way more reflective of our world yeah. um, when we look at their personal experiences. And yeah. I, you know, I think, I think that's a really, um, a really, really interesting uh approach i uh i must say that when when i was a kid i grew up in hong kong and um and 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 this was when hong kong was still a um british colony (laughs) and uh and uh i 
actually ended up moving to England and I went to high school there. Hmm. And it was it was the ultimate um, expectation, um, and it was drilled into me that it was it was is my goal to assimilate. You know the hmm. yeah. um, the the culture, the language, the everything there, and um, and and it was it was as if you know none none of the you know my previous experience would have. You know, it's like it's almost like it didn't. Not only did it not matter, it's inferior, and mm. therefore, you know, why would you do that? Is aren't you here to learn the better way of doing yeah. something? Um, and um, and uh, well, I guess this is you know all the way to like the the Great British Empire here. And yeah. so, so there's a there's a there's a there's a very strong uh, feeling that that was the. Um, that was the the way to be, and and I'm not I I I'm not sure if that's changed that much, um, <clears throat> you know. Um, and but 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 I I think that you know one of our colleagues and whom you know well as well, and Paul Wasco, who's been working with yeah. you know students, native students in Alaska, and uh, the the types of knowledge and experience that they bring to the classroom is just absolutely amazing yeah um and and for us to not not only not acknowledge it but not you know harness that as being an a, a major learning opportunity for all of us is um is uh is really foolish right yeah, it's it's deep it's deep knowledge that um, yeah. that everybody has, um, you know, and 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 if we are if we are truly you know a liberal arts I mean we are truly a liberal arts institution, um, and so you know it's it's critical for us to try and listen and find as much information and knowledge as we can and then connect that in as many ways as possible. Like it's, it's like the very definition of the liberal arts. And, Mm -hmm. and so squashing that out, um, is, um, is just antithetical to who we are, um, professionally. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, yeah. (laughs) So how do students today, you know, I think that I, I also have, have have heard and seen personally, you know, sort of portfolios that feels like that portfolio has to always be the very um, almost glamorous part of your life. You know, the mm-hmm. the um, the parts where you succeeded um, uh, because you you know you're almost scared of exposing yourself, and yeah. you know, do people think of me less because you know that you know I didn't. I didn't have these super positive experience throughout. Um, and I think that there are, um, it almost feels like to me that, you know, sometimes we see these amazing portfolios, like the ones I was tell, saying from, you know, from University of Alaska, from some of Paul Wasco and, and Andre Thorne's, you know, students. Um, you know, like it almost has to, you almost like, oh, that's a very, um, you know, they're, they're very brave and, you know, have a lot of courage to do this, but it shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't yeah. even think that it should just yeah. be, um, you know, that's, sh- that, that, that should, we sh- they shouldn't have to be 
so brave to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's I a, think. Yeah. It, yeah. It. it um, there's there's a sort of like we have an opportunity i think with with portfolios but i think more than that just with with reflective pedagogy mm-hmm. um and of course you know portfolios are nothing without the teaching um and paul's paul's good really good paul wasco's really good at this um with the story with storytelling mm-hmm. um you know allowing students to tell their stories and then to see themselves um uh, as kind of narrative creatures who are kind of like thinking about their past and um, and um, and and their present and and um, kind of hoping for something in the future. Uh, now, I, there's an exception to this. We leaned with our early milestone stuff, leaned too heavily into the narrative language, and students were like creating portfolios with themselves as protagonists, basically, which is also not exactly what you want, because um, <laughs> uh, that also doesn't create a space where somebody is. Um, feel safe to like talk about negative things and failures. Um, but, you know, I think good reflective pedagogy allows people to think about themselves as in process. And so, um, and, and, uh, and so we, we've started encouraging students to think more creatively about sort of artifacts that they put in portfolios. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and the thing that's helped the most with this is using examples from students and showing them to other students of uh, artifacts like here is my here is one paper from my my writing course and this is my first draft and just like putting their first draft or a screenshot of the first draft with their with their professor's comments on it um, up there and then su- successive drafts um, which. Uh, in terms of design, doesn't make for like riveting reading. You know, it's not like a, a fancy shiny thing to put in your your portfolio. Um, and uh, but but it, what it does is it shows growth and change. And that to me is what is what you know these portfolios are. Is is somebody who's who's able to you know stop, look back at something that was meaningful to them, but also wasn't necessarily a success, um, and put it in their portfolio to to kind of create. Um, sort of narrative of one's own um, experience of, of change. This concludes part one of our conversation with Peter McClellan from Oxford College of Emory University. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. This episode was produced by Drew Albanicius. Thanks for listening.